Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I am Andrew Gutman, and along with my co-host, Beth Feely, we are two parents and accidental activists fighting to reclaim our nation's education system. And speaking of reclaiming our nation's education system, we have a very special guest today. She is a mother of four. She is a grandmother of 10. For more than three decades, she led the fight for policies that allow students and their parents the freedom to choose the best educational option for them. She is the former chair of the American Federation for Children, the Philanthropy Roundtable, and the Michigan Republican Party, and has served on numerous boards, including the Kennedy Center and the American Enterprise Institute. She was the 11th U.S. Secretary of Education from 2017 through 2021. She has a brand new book out called Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child that just came out just two days ago, I think, and Beth and I have both read that. So we are very, very honored to welcome Betsy DeVos to take back our schools. So Betsy, thank you so much for taking time out of your, I know, very busy schedule to join us on Take Back Our Schools. It's a pleasure to join you. We, so Beth and I have both read your new book, this week, um, which we both enjoyed. I have to say one thing that uh, I learned about you that I am also a fellow percussionist back back <laughs> in school. Um, that was a long time ago. So I want to talk about, I think what is, you know, the main theme of your book, and in many ways, the main, I think, theme of your professional life and, and the subtitle of your book, which is really the fight for education freedom. And I know, you know, you define that in the book and you and you sort of define it as something much broader than what a lot of people call just school choice. So I'm wondering if you can just start off talking about what you mean by education freedom and why it's so important that, you know, it to give, you know, every kid in America uh, the best education that we possibly can. So for many years, I really referred to the work that uh, I and many others were doing as school choice. But uh, a couple of years ago, I really uh, felt that it was uh, more appropriate to term it educational freedom because it really does express uh, the broader vision for what K-12 education could be experienced, how it could be experienced by uh, children all across the country. And um, often, you know, rural legislators think about uh, school buildings going up next to uh, their, you know, one rural school that serves kids in a, a large area. And, and I want to make sure that they're thinking, again, differently than just buildings and infrastructure. Um, and I use a, an example of a school I've not had a chance to visit, but um, am familiar with because their close friends, grandchildren attend it. It's, it, you know, I live in Michigan. It's, it's cold in the winter, but this is a year-round outdoor school. And the kids are outdoors every day all day long, and they love it. They have a waiting list to get into the school. And so I, I, there are so many different ways that kids can learn, and we haven't really been permitted to think more broadly about that just because our, uh, you know, the, the monopolistic government-run system has been the same framework for 175 years. Yeah, you, um, you talk about an early example of something that I think kind of inspired you. And I think it was called the Potter's School. Could you talk about the Potter's House? The Potter's mm -hmm. House. Would you mind talking a little bit about that and kind of how that made an imprint on you? 
Sure. Well, when my oldest son, Rick, was about to start kindergarten, I was researching options in our area. And Dick and I, my husband and I had the you know, benefit of knowing we were going to be able to send Rick wherever we thought was going to be best for him. Um, and I, I came across this little Christian school in the heart of our city that serves children in that neighborhood. And uh, long story short, I got involved there as a volunteer. Rick didn't end up going there. But um, the more I got involved with uh, mentoring students and Dick and I helping support them, because as a Christian school, they had to raise 90% of their operating, operating funds from outside of the student population because their families could not afford to pay the tuition. So the more I got involved, the more I realized that uh, our policies around how we support individual kids' educations were not oriented to what was right for families and children. It was really supporting a system. And um, so to, you know, the Potter's House is going strong today. And I'm, uh, I'm very hopeful that in the not too distant future, the education savings account opportunity will be available for more families to make choices like the Potter's House. And that um, the education savings account idea, I think you referred to it as kind of that's your that's your top choice in terms of school choice. And for those not familiar with what an education savings account is, could you give kind of the high level of, of what that is versus traditional education? Sure. Or how it's um, So there, there are many mechanisms to accomplish education freedom, but the one that would allow for the most freedom and the most ability to um, really address every student's individual needs is uh, called an education savings account. And it's, it, it really is um, very similar to what a health savings account might be like. Yeah, um, so I, I like to use the metaphor of a backpack. You know, kids go to school with the stuff they need every day in their backpack. And um, I think that metaphorically to achieve education freedom, the funding that is already designated for that child should be attached to that backpack for the families to decide where that child is going to learn best. It might be in their assigned school. And if that is, that's great. Uh, but it might be a school in their neighborhood that they've had their eye on for some time and you know, know that kids there are doing particularly well. Or it might be um, a small learning pod. Uh, some of these things that have been created out of necessity this last couple of years uh, or, or a homeschool consortium, or perhaps it's a customized education for their child that you know buys a few classes at one particular location, maybe a class or two online, or any combination really thereof. Uh, but it would again, I, I think we we have to um, think very broadly about what education might look like or that experience might look like for kids in their K twelve years. Within a few years, I think the creativity and the ingenuity of Americans would help bring about a whole lot of new experiences that will be really great for, for kids of all, all kinds. Oh, just had one, one follow-up on this. So, and in your book, you have lots of examples of, of the innovation that can happen when there is this freedom. And I can see how that works for families where the parents are engaged and motivated, but a common, um, argument from the other side of this is, so what happens to the kids who don't have those families? Um, sure. What would your response be to that? 
Well, for one thing, I think uh, I think there are actually very few that would fall into that category. Just I know this because of my 35 years of work with families that um, and that are often presumed to not care. And uh, I, you know, par- there's nobody who loves children more than parents. Um, somebody else can profess to, but parents, by you know, they they, they have. Uh, the most interest in seeing the best for their children. And, um, and so, but even if you granted that there would be a small percentage of parents that would not uh, get engaged and would not be invested, they will alter their children will ultimately benefit. And here's why. Um, In fact, studies have shown in Florida where there is the greatest amount of education freedom so far uh, there's still more to be had, but so far, where the districts where children, uh, the highest percentage of children are going to a school other than their assigned school, uh, the achievement levels for kids that have stayed in their in their assigned school have continued to rise as well. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, kid, for, for kids who that school wasn't working, they've found another place to learn. And for kids who have stayed there, those school leaders have made decisions and changes that they weren't perhaps willing to make before they had to go and compete or compare themselves with other options in the district in or, or in the in the area. And so ultimately, all kids will benefit. Some may benefit more than others because they have perhaps a more active or engaged family, but all of them will ultimately benefit because the, just the, the focus on doing better and on getting more excellent will be higher. Just, I've, I've only been an activist in this space for a little over a year. And there's something that I've been thinking about that I really struggle with that I'm, that I'm curious to have your take on it. You know, you talk a lot about the model of factory schools that go back, I think you said 175 years, the Horace Mann idea mm-hmm. of every kid learning the same thing in rows. Every kid learns differently. Every kid has different interests. And you talk about some of the very innovative schools in your book. On the other hand, what we seem to be lacking as a country, we call this broadly you know, part of the culture war, is that we're not teaching kids the common civics, the common history. Yeah. Some would say that the patriotism that we need in a democracy to develop good citizens. So how do you reconcile you know, innovative schools where kids can really choose their interests with some commonality where we can create sort of good citizens in an American democracy? Sure, uh, great, great question. And um, I, I think that goes back to the uh, responsibility that states have to sort of set the framework for expectations. And um, I, I think if in a, a uh, environment of f- full education freedom, there's still a role for the state to say, you know, we expect that in order to earn uh, what would be recognized as graduation from high school, 12th grade, uh, you have to be able to demonstrate that you've learned some of these foundational things about, you know, our nation's founding and how to be a good citizen. Uh, There can be general requirements around that. I think where you run into problems is where either the federal level tries to impose a national curriculum or a state tries to impose a specific uh, explicit approach to that curriculum. And um, 
But by the same token, I think it's in all of our interests to ensure that students graduate from their uh, K-12 years with a, you know, a solid understanding of what their responsibilities are as, uh, as Americans. You know, along those lines, I know it's uh, been in the news quite a bit over the past year that CRT has been influencing school curricula. What is your opinion on banning things like that? Well, I think it's a laudable effort, but I also know by experience and observation for a lot, lot of years that you can ban something, but where there's a will, there's a way to find a way around it and come in and call it something different, that there's always, there's always the risk of uh, the, the same sort of problem entering from a different direction. And so my, uh, my preferred approach would be to really require radical transparency with, uh, with those who are you know, in that system or in that school, that uh, all of the you know, things that are being taught in every grade level be openly available to the families that are there and participating, uh, both on the curriculum and learning side, as well as on the financial side. And uh, those are two areas where the system has obfuscated and um, hidden and renamed and, uh, you know, the, and on the financial side, it, it, that is very opaque in most, uh, in most cases. One of the things that, you know, that we, those of us that have learned about this in the education industry, um, you know, have understood now is that the, the graduate education schools are really in many ways the indoctrination factories for the teachers that go on then and pass on this critical race theory or gender or queer theory or whatever, you know, you want to call it now into public schools. How do we solve that problem? Because if, if, you know, we talk about, you know, top down, even if it's not coming top down from a federal, even state level, if the teachers are bringing this bottom up into the classroom because of what they've learned in the education schools, we, we you know, we haven't solved the problem. Sure. Well, uh, that's an that's an opportunity to um, really, again, think beyond the uh, experiences and the and the and the and the um, sort of way we have uh, populated the, uh, the, you know, the system in the schools. Uh, I, first of all, I know there are many, many great teachers who have left the teaching profession um, for a variety of reasons, but I, I would generally boil them down to a frustration with living and working within this system that does not recognize them as excellent, does not reward them for being excellent, and, um, and in fact, I had a roundtable uh, discussion with uh, teachers who had been teachers of the year in their district or their state, and very soon after their victory lap year, had gone back to their schools and soon thereafter quit teaching. And I wanted to understand why. And this was essentially it. You know, they were basically, they said, we were basically told, get back in your box. You've had your day in the sun. And, um, and now you can go back and be on page 32 of that book on this day, right along with everybody else. And so in an environment of education freedom, the, the excellent teacher becomes a very critical part of that equation, right? They're gonna become more highly valued and recognized for that value. And, um, and again, will be, I think, compensated accordingly. And, uh, and then, commensurate with that 
every state has uh, hurdles to the teaching profession. My state of Michigan requires certification levels that are just, you know, unbelievably right. high right. for, especially for people who come in from a non-traditional route. Mm-hmm. And um, I use the example of the uh, charter high school that my husband started. It's an aviation focused high school. And um, the teacher who is head of the aviation part of the whole school, which, you know, there's different pieces of the curriculum that have different aspects of bringing aviation into the experience. Well, he was a former military guy who was also a flight instructor. And in order for him to teach in high school and teach kids how to fly in high school, he had to go and get certified as a teacher in Michigan. Now, this is a guy who could have taught any teacher how to teach because he had been teaching. And it's just an example of the unnecessary hurdles um, that that, we've allowed to be in place. And I, again, I think with an education environment that encouraged um, experts in a whole variety of areas to get involved, um, we we would see a very different dynamic for the teachers themselves and we would, um, we would, again, elevate teaching to the professional level I think it should be. Something tells me that teachers' unions are probably not amenable to having some more creative standards or, or ways for some of these people in different professions to enter the profession. And along those lines of unions, I think it's an understatement to say that the unions disliked you. Um, and quite frankly, you were the subject of their ire and abuse. And I'm just wondering how, how did you deal with that? What, what is it like to kind of be that, that type of target by that powerful of force, um, especially in the world of education? Well, I was, I was not a stranger to it coming into the role in Washington um, because I had been working on the state level for many, many various state levels, not just Michigan for many, many years and had, uh, had had uh, combat with them over, you know, the, it, the politics of it um, have have been uh, increasingly evident, and um, and so I was not a stranger to it. But I I was really uh, I think disheartened by the fact that while I tr- I tried genuinely to reach out and have. Uh, you know, good faith conversation about how we could find some common ground on behalf of students. Um, you know, the head of the NEA wouldn't even re- like refuse to ever even mm-hmm. talk with me. And um, as I recall, Brandy Weingarten, the head of AFT, you did correspond and you went to visit the school she chose, but she did not go to the school that you chose. Yes, yes. We had made a deal. I would visit whatever school she wanted me to visit with her. And I wanted to take her to a school that I would choose. And um, sadly, it was never able to be scheduled. You, I want to quote something from your book. Um, very early on in the book, it's like on page six, you wrote, Democrats have to rethink their role as the political arm of the school union bosses. Is that really possible? I mean, is that ever going to happen? Is there any movement along those lines? And do you think people understand that that's the dynamic um, as well? Yeah, I, I'm very hopeful that um, as more parents, in, again, I think the the last two years and every you know the front row seat that families had to how their 
children's schools navigated the pandemic, uh, there's, there's a um, dissatisfaction level that has never been uh, really uh, noted, noted before. Like th- we have more dissatisfaction and more uh, parents who, who want something different for their children now having realized either the deficiency of uh, their reaction, you know, how they solved the problems of uh, being shut down and then didn't reopen, whatever, whether it was the curriculum issues, whatever the reasoning, um, I think families and, you know, grandparents and friends and neighbors are paying attention like never before. And so I I, I do think that, elected officials are going to have to wake up to that fact if they want to survive in their um, particular roles and actually reorient their voting around what's right for students. And we've seen some of this happening at the state level. Uh, We had a lot of good success with that during the time I was uh, working um, before going to Washington. And the the challenge is that those at the federal level um, are very uh, beholden to the teachers union and and their demands. But again, I think this last couple of years has begun to awaken them. I was heartened to see, uh, you know, three of the Democrat senators uh, speak up with regard to the education, the Biden administration's proposed um, new rules around expanding charter schools. And those were, you know, uh, those were senators who before have have supported charter schools. And um, that's a very important and viable form of freedom and choice. And so I have I have some optimism that that there are going to be more folks who really realize that we have got to do something different in order for all to ensure that all kids have an equal opportunity to get a great education. Yeah, I, I was surprised reading how some of some people that were known Democrats known for school choice issues and, and really being very aggressive on charter schools, people like Cory Booker, who just completely change 180 yeah it, that was that was very very um very frustrating it was uh it was you know very disheartening for me but um i mean he he clearly said and he was you know an aspirant for a presidential candidate and he said you know the teachers unions took me to the broom closet and um boy that's a, a pretty pretty strong admission as to their power and the stranglehold they've had. It, it certainly is. And I am, I think also parents really understood not only better what is going on in their classrooms, but kind of who is driving the bus um, in that respect. So mm-hmm. um, I would love to uh, get your thoughts on some rules that came out uh, that actually reversed essentially some rules that you put in place that reversed some rules that the Obama administration put in place. And I'm talking, of course, about Title IX. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, there were a number of initiatives that you oversaw um, in the to reverse his dear Obama's dear colleague letters, but specifically this one that came out yesterday that um, essentially redefines or proposes to redefine sex to include uh, sexual orientation and um, uh, gender identity. 
Um, what and then as well, some of the rules that apply to um, harassment on college campuses and just would love your thoughts on um, the process that you went through uh, to actually arrive to the conclusions, which I thought were terrific. Um, and then I guess how frustrating it is to have this kind of ping pong game going on between administrations um, right. and how that, you know, and how that impacts kids. Absolutely. Well, um, uh, not surprisingly, this proposed rule, and it is only proposed at this point, but they they are proceeding with the same process that uh, we did during the last administration to really put a uh, we, you know, I was, I was very proud of the work that we did and the resulting rule that put in place a very fair, balanced approach for how to handle these issues on campus. And um, what this rule is, is uh, proposing is broadly to roll back uh, many of the due process protections that we had ensured and, and restated that, you know, the necessity to honor in, in our rule rolling back those. And then in addition, uh, what they're proposing around how they're defining sex uh, basically will put an end to women's sports. Yeah. Now they've said they're going to do a separate rule, but you can't do a separate separate rule. I mean, Title IX is Title IX. And, um, and you cannot say you support uh, men and women's act, equal access to education and as an outgrowth, sports as well. And then on the other hand, say, it's okay to also support biological males competing on women's teams. They're, they don't, there's no Venn, no Venn diagram there. They don't, they don't intersect. And, um, and so this is, uh, while it's, it's proposed, there's going to be a comment period. And I urge and encourage everyone who has an opinion on this to weigh into it, um, submit your thoughts, and I, uh, I guarantee there's going to be more than one court case as a result of what, wherever they end up. Um, but this is, a, this is a process. I want to remind everyone it's a process, not an event. And uh, this is the time to really speak into what they're proposing and, um, and express your concerns and, and opposition to some of these uh, moves that are, are, you know, totally counterproductive for females. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted to ask you what, what can parents really do? I mean, we have a lot of parent listeners to this podcast, you know, write, write your congressperson, write your, you know. It, yeah. And there's a, there's a, a place to, to comment um, at the Department of Education website. And I, I'm sure that you can provide a link. We'll, we'll make sure you have a link and you can pro yeah. provide links to, to all the folks who are interested so they can go right there and submit comments and one of the requirements, if you're following the Administrative Procedures Act carefully and closely, is that you must respond to every single comment. And so the more comments and the more uh, different comments that people make, um, the better. Uh, that, will, that will really require um, the administration to do their work and, um, and I think will also help push back in, in very significant ways. And we should point out individuals can do this, organizations can do this, anyone is open to, to submit their uh, comment. And so we, we would definitely encourage you to do so and we'll make that link available um, in the show notes for this episode. As you look back on your four years as Secretary of Education, 
any regrets, anything you wish you would have done differently or wish you would have been able to accomplish that, that you just couldn't do? Uh, my wish for having uh, gotten the Education Freedom Scholarship tax credit um, implemented, uh, that is, you know, that's the biggest uh, miss or, um, you know, we, we could not get that accomplished. There were a couple of times and places where upon, uh, with, with hindsight, there maybe would have pushed harder, faster in certain areas. Um, but I, I, I am very heartened by the support that was built uh, for that initiative, which just to be clear, would establish a, a mechanism, a federal tax credit, not a new program, not a new department or agency, just a mechanism at the Department of Treasury to facilitate individuals and corporations to designate a small portion of their federal tax bill um, to come alongside programs in states that are providing these education freedom opportunities to families. So it would have been like a little rocket fuel and it, it will be. Uh, yeah. the, virtually the same bill has just been introduced again. And um, I suspect it's going to continue to gain momentum and support. And uh, as I said then, um, and I'll say again now, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so um, that's, uh, while, while I regret not being able to see it implemented during my time in office, um, I'm, I'm going to be continuing to fight along with everybody else to get that, that ultimately across the finish line. Well, we'll be there with you fighting. Awesome. We believe. So Betsy, thank you so much for joining Andrew us. Andrew and, and Beth, thank school. you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. So she's a remarkable woman. I, I, I'm impressed, you know, reading reading the book and then, you know, speaking with her, you know, briefly now, how passionate and earnest she really is for education and for every American child to get the best possible education that they can. I mean, that, that's really my takeaway from, from, from reading about her life, which I didn't know a whole lot about, and mm -hmm. then from speaking with her today. What, what, what do you think? Oh, uh, for sure. I mean, I thought the book, does a great job of kind of capturing her vision for education, uh, you know, the background, kind of what she was inspired by, which really came from her family and then having her own kids and really um, taking education seriously uh, and, and really, you know, taking this on as her issue. And it's, she's been doing this for decades. I mean, she has been in classrooms. She has been a mentor. She knows education. And so I think that really shows through in the book um, and did in the interview and uh, yeah, no, I, I commend the book to people. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, and I'm in talk for, you are page yeah, 256. Quoted, I, we didn't say, we didn't talk about this, but uh, yeah, <laughs> two, page 256, she quotes my letter. So I was very thankful. Yeah. Your moment of becoming that accidental right. activist is recorded in print. Uh, no. So she was, she was terrific. You know, I especially appreciated uh, when we were talking about the naysayers about education freedom and people that say, oh, you know, what about, what about the kids that are going to be left behind? What about, um, you know, that, that there's somehow with this lack of control and there's too much freedom that kids will get lost or quality will go down. And quite frankly, in terms of quality, the opposite happens. And there is that that research from Florida that says where there was choice um, at even public schools ended up improving because they have to, to remain competitive, you know, so it kind of follows those market principles. And so I, I really did appreciate that. 
the, the, the abuse she took, and then we didn't talk a whole lot about it now, but, but she talks a lot about it in the book. And, and to be able to sort of you know, withstand that is, is commendable. But the amount of abuse she took from the teachers' unions, mm-hmm. it, starting with her confirmation hearings, and I know she talks about how you know, she, she dealt with this for her decades mm-hmm. in advocacy work, but it, it's remarkable that she you know, was really the punching bag for the teachers' unions for four years. She was. And I think, you know, she I think she developed very thick skin because of that, although she is just lovely as can be. So you would never know. But there is definitely a a quiet confidence around those unions. And so I think she's you know, she knows what she's dealing with. She's tough as nails. And I think she understands that largely the unions are are in the way of this movement and of education freedom. And so, you know, I don't know how we solve that. I mean, that, that, that's a million dollar question. It is. Is, is. I mean, and the Janus decision did not, you know, it was an excellent decision. The one where teachers now do not have to join their union or any public sector union. Um, but it, it did not necessarily result in this, you know, outflow of, right. of teachers in the unions. I think there's still a lot of peer pressure. I think the whole environment is definitely a tough nut to crack. Um, so, so I don't know, but you have to, you have to keep, you know, chipping keep away and, and, and also just to make the distinction. And I think she makes this in the book. There's a difference between a, a union member and union leadership. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of teachers are parts of, are in a union. Uh, they may not agree with everything that the union, in fact, they may totally disagree with what the union is doing. And so, um, yeah, you know, maybe we need to reach more of those teachers and empower them um, to, you know, hope make, create change from within. I, I don't know if that's possible or not, but clearly a stumbling block and just the political power uh, that they hold through money um, and, and largely to Democrats. Enormous what is it like 98 percent goes to Democrats? Yeah, for, enormous for- amount of money. I, mean, I, I think that's the question that, you know, we, we briefly talked about with Betsy you know, the COVID issues, right? The, the good and bad of the two years of, of COVID and school closures that was horrific for children and horrific for, you know, how much learning loss and mental health issues. And we need to talk more about that on future episodes because we haven't covered that all that much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the one good thing that everyone says came out of that is it woke parents up. They saw what their like kids you, were learning. Right? <laughs> like you, like, right? Like me, yeah. Um, you know, they saw what their kids were learning on Zoom they saw what the teachers unions were doing to prevent schools from reopening. Uh, and, and it has made this, you know, this, this nascent parents movement. And we saw that in the Virginia gubernatorial elections last year. And, you know, everyone expects that to carry forward through the midterms this year, but we'll see, we'll see if that has, does one of two things, either it does wake the democratic party up and bring them a little bit back to the center, or at least a little bit less beholden to the teachers unions, I think. I don't know if that'll happen um, or, or if it makes the unions realize that they went too far. I'm not optimistic about this, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know if you have thoughts on if, if you're more optimistic than I am. I don't know. I mean, I think the unions, I think it's the union leadership that really sets the tone. And if we, if, you know, yesterday's any, any indication, um, if you look at the union platforms, they are 100%, I would guess about these title nine revisions and that essentially are trying to reverse, I thought the progress that she made um, in reversing what uh, the Obama administration had put out. And I encourage people uh, definitely to 
uh, you know, do some news searches, read up about it, and then go to that Department of Education portal, and we will we'll put it in the show notes, um, and to express your views on these changes, because they will have consequences if they are put into law or so, made, made into a regulation, essentially. So um, just, just for, for listeners that are maybe not as familiar with Title IX, and I think we're going we're gonna to have a future episode. Yes. Uh, just we'll, about we'll Title IX. We'll dive deep on this, yes. But, you know, mm-hmm. Title IX was a rule that came out in 1972, I think, that eliminated discrimination on the basis of sex in any federally funded education activity. Now, what most people knew it for until recently was athletics. Uh, well, it started out just a- education access to any to, to schools, and then I think the the sports aspect was later. And then, but that's what most yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. But that's what most people knew it for was yes. was mm-hmm. saying you know however many men you have playing sports, you have to have women opportunities to play sports. So that basically create you know in a lot of ways created you know women's athletics in colleges. Then it became sort of this one of the hot points on the, on the culture war because of the gender and trans issues, the Obama administration, they, they uh, wrote what, what, what's known as the Dear Colleague Letter, which is basically the administrative state making a rule without going through the legislature that said basically all bathrooms have to be uh, open to anybody. I think, Correct. and then I don't know what year that happened. Um, I want to say it was, was the last two years of his administration. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the big issue with Title IX became... Um, how when you had an incident on campus, the due process or lack thereof, what I think Betsy describes in her book, it's it's a kangaroo Mm -hmm. court uh, um, for the accused of any, you know, sexual discrimination or assault type of activity. Yeah, there was a standard of evidence that was changed, the process, um, there really was not due process for the accused. And um, interestingly, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg seemed to land on the same side as Secretary DeVos on this, that there there was some room for improvement in how that due process was handled. So um, yeah, people should definitely uh, look at that issue and, and be sure to weigh in because it is a chance to express your, your views and your voice and speak up as a citizen. Uh, and it can influence, um, what was it? They had withdrawn when they hear enough um, and they do have to respond as she said, um, it right. can, they actually withdrew. I think it was guidance um, that had been attempted Uh, regarding something to do with the 1619 project. This was a few months ago, um, saying that they were going to award grants when people adopted that type of material. And they heard from so many people, they ended up withdrawing the recommendation um, for that regulation. So it can make a difference. So So I'll say this, because what are are some of our mutual friends in this fight who have already, I think, commented on, on yesterday's Proposed revisions. We know we know we have the, the the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida, which is obviously a misrepresentation of what that is. Uh, our friends on this side are calling this the "Must Say They" rule. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, I on, on no. So "Must Say They" is is our side's. Um, so there's way, a Twitter hand, is there a Twitter hand, Twitter handle yeah. yet? Yeah. <laughs> if, if not, there will be shortly. <laughs> so we'll have a future episode, I think, on Title Nine. Yes, uh, we will. And, and in short order, because it is timely. Um, the window is, I believe, 60 days um, in order to do your comments. And so, yes, we will hit that. So with that, I mean, it was an honor uh, to, to have Secretary DeVos. And if you read her new book, Hostages No More, you will clearly see that she knows education. She has walked the talk when it comes to acting on her desire to see student-centric best fit education become available to every single child in the country, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their income level. 
And um, again, I was struck by the number of examples of what education can look like that she provides in the book. Yeah. Um, so I think the best is yet to come in American education. So I hope so. That's what we're <laughs> fighting for. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please do share it. Give us a positive rating on wherever you access your podcasts. And also, please do join us again. On behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, this is Beth Feely, and we will be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.